Um, is we're diving into 2 Samuel today. I hope you haven't forgotten everything from 1 Samuel uh, that we considered back in the spring, Um, but we're coming to 2 Samuel here, and we'll spend some time in 2 Samuel in the fall. There'll be some uh, we won't be quite as long in Second Samuel as we were in First Samuel, but we're going to pick up the life of David and continue um, the book of Samuel. And I, and I say the book of Samuel because this is one book in the Hebrew Bible. It's not divided up like our English Bibles, First Samuel and Second Samuel. It's just called the book of Samuel. And so we're actually taking a continuing journey through this same book we have been considering the last several months together. And the story of David's life really comes to us in two seasons, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. And we finished season one back at the end of May. And like any good Netflix series or Amazon Prime series or whatever series you particularly like, we had to wait until August uh, for the new season to drop. Now, I know that for many of you... um, who have grown up in the last, you know, especially the younger among us, who have grown up in a time in which is completely foreign to the rest of humanity, where we used to have to wait for television to come on. Now we just kind of, you know, we live in a streaming society, you kind of on demand, you just kind of watch it whenever you want to. Well, we didn't have to wait, we, we had to wait. We had to watch reruns all summer long. And then a new season would come along, and um, it still happens that way to a degree in our own society. There's little times of waiting periods, and then boom, the whole series is there, and you can watch it again. But I'm super excited to continue Second Samuel, and a new episode, Lord willing, will drop every Sunday morning. So, This morning, we're going to cover the first four chapters, which I know sounds like a lot, but it's really not. It has, has sort of one main theme to it, as, as you'll see as we work our way through it, and they're really telling the story, these opening chapters, of the transfer of power from Saul, who you remember died at the end of 1 Samuel, and the anointing and crowning of King David. And frankly, as you might expect, it's a mess. We aren't even sure in these opening chapters who the good guys are. These first four chapters are arranged um, in the form of what we call a chiasm. Now, if you, and we don't use that word ever, but let me just explain what I mean by that. Um, in Hebrew literature, typically stories are structured chiastically or in the form of a chiasm. A chiasm is where the beginning of a story mirrors the end of a story. It's like the beginning of the story and how it unfolds comes back around to the, to the end, and it kind of ends the same way it began. And you're going to see that throughout these four chapters. Here's what I mean. It begins in chapter 1 with David executing the purported murderers of Saul. And then it ends in chapter 4 with David executing the murderers of Saul's son. So David is executing people as king who have killed innocent people in his mind, or done things they should not have done to the Lord's anointed. And that kind of brackets chapters 1 and chapter 4 together. And then in the middle, you kind of see this pattern begin to emerge. There's David's lament over the death of Saul and Jonathan. And then there's this struggle that occurs between the house of David and the house of Saul. And then finally, David's house is established. Then the pattern repeats. You see another struggle between two commanders, Abner and Joab, eventually resulting in the death of Abner and lamenting by David again. And then an execution of a murderer, and then the house of David is established. So you see this pattern. There's this execution of a murderer. There's a 
or at least a purported one, there's a lament, there's a struggle, then David's house is established. And then it follows another pattern. Another struggle, another lament, and then another murder that is atoned for, that is, that is pre- received justice for, and then the house of David gets established again. So that's the general pattern. Now we're going to dive into the actual text. We're going to jump around a little bit this morning, but I've got two main questions I want us to answer, and we're going to look at David in particular and kind of weave in these other characters as we go. So here are the two main questions this morning. They're on your notes as well. First of all, why is David the true king of Israel? What do we see in his life that reflects that God has in fact chosen him as king of Israel? And then secondly, why is he not the ultimate king? Why do we already in these opening chapters see flaws in David that are going to show up later on in the story and cause his ultimate downfall? So number one, why is David the true king? Three aspects of his character I want us to look at this morning that show us why David is in fact the true king of Israel. First of all, David's submission. David's submission. We left 1 Samuel, if you'll remember, back in the spring on a sad note. Uh, the prophet Samuel had anointed David as the next king, and Saul responded by trying to hunt him down and kill him, even though David had done nothing but faithfully serve Saul throughout his entire life. And David is still on the run as we come into the second part of Samuel, having been exiled from Israel by Saul, who was insanely jealous of him. And as the book of Second Samuel opens, we get this scene in which a strange Amalekite man shows up in David's camp, with disturbing news. Let's read that disturbing news in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. David said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. Remember, the Israelites had just been defeated in battle. And David said to him, How did it go? Tell me. And he answered, The people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead, and Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Now, this is not a time where he would have gotten that by text message or even a phone call. A messenger had to be sent to him, and King Saul and his son Jonathan, who was David's best friend, if you'll remember, have both died tragically in a battle with the Philistines. And this is the first time David has heard of both Israel's loss in the battle and of Saul and Jonathan's death. And so he asks this Amalekite how he knows all this. The man says later in chapter 1 that as he was passing by the battlefield, he heard Saul call out to him. And Saul, if you remember, was badly wounded. And he asked this Amalekite to put him out of his misery before the Philistines got to him. Now this man's lying. We know, if you remember from the end of 1 Samuel, that Saul committed suicide. He threw himself down on his own spear. And he asked his armor bearer to kill him. And when he wouldn't do it, Saul eventually killed himself. So more likely what's happening here is that this Amalekite was scavenging from the treasure among all the dead soldiers. And when he stumbled upon King Saul's body, he sensed another opportunity for personal gain. Wouldn't David, this Amalekite would wonder, be excited that Saul was dead? And wouldn't he be grateful to the guy for finishing Saul off and bringing him the crown? Surely this Amalekite thinks David would be excited about hearing this news. So he takes Saul's crown and he brings it to David and he tells him this story. 
Now, at the very beginning of chapter 1, who comes to see David? It's an Amalekite. Now, what significance is that? Well, Saul lost his kingdom, if you remember back in 1 Samuel 15, when the, the kingdom was removed from Saul. Why was the kingdom taken away from Saul? Because against God's orders, the people plundered the Amalekites. Now we have an Amalekite plundering Saul. Saul claimed to have wiped out the Amalekites, but he didn't. And now an Amalekite claims to have wiped out Saul, but he didn't. The irony is thick here in what's happening in the story. David, however, does not react like this guy expects. How does David react? Look at verse 14 of chapter 1. David said to him, How is it that you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? And then David called one of the young men and said, Go, execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. He commands that this Amalekite be executed. David has never wanted to come to the throne by taking matters into his own hands. David knew that you can never achieve the purposes of God by compromising the commands of God. And he takes that seriously in his own life, and he takes that seriously in anyone's life who would try to take the life of God's king, which is what this Amalekite purported to do. And ironically, in his lie, he ends up being executed. Countless times throughout David's life, he had an opportunity to force his way onto the throne, but he didn't do it, did he? David teaches us here the importance of being submissive to God. He teaches us here that it's a great temptation for us as God's people, not just to pursue something that's bad, but to pursue something good, but to do it in the wrong way. Instead of trusting God's timing and God's way, we can be tempted to put God on our timetable. And when God isn't delivering the way we anticipate, we feel like it's an excuse to go ahead and do things our way. We aren't making the money we want at work, so we'll overwork or we'll cheat or cut corners. We want to be married, but we're so, we, we aren't, so we're prone to compromise. We want to see the church grow so we can water down the word. We manipulate circumstances to get our kids where we want them to be. Dear ones, rather than trying to advance ourselves, let's trust God to do with us as he see fit. Never, ever let your ambition exceed your humility. May God help us to be people who put his interests above self-interest, trusting him to give us what is best in his time and in his way and being submissive to him along the way. In this sense, David is a wonderful example of seeking God's direction and submitting to his leadership. Notice how chapter 2 opens again. Joe read this for us, but I'll read just one verse. Chapter 2, verse 1. After this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? Notice he's seeking God, asking for God's direction as to what he should do. And the Lord says to him, Go up. And then David gets more specific. To which shall I go up? And he said, to Hebron. Go to that city. He doesn't do what he wants and then ask God to bless it, which is often what I fear we do, right? It's what I do sometimes. I do what I want to do and then, oh God, will you bless this? But rather on the front end, he asks God to bless before he ever, and lead, before he ever does anything. He doesn't ask God to ride shotgun while he drives. Rather, 
he recognizes God is in the driver's seat and he wants to join him wherever he's going. Look at the end of 2 Samuel chapter 5. We'll get a little bit into chapter 5 this morning. And David does the same thing on the back end. He says in verse 17 of 2 Samuel chapter 5, When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. But David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. It's like the Camp David, right? Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. There again, we see David submissive. Now as a warrior king... He no doubt would be engaged. These are the Philistines. I've got their number. This isn't my first rodeo. I took out Goliath. I can take out this army again. I've defeated them again and again and again and again through the years. But no, he doesn't do that. He says, Lord, it's not about whether or not I can defeat the Philistines. It's about whether or not you want me to do it and if you will defeat them through me. Because that's my only hope. So you see his submission to God in his acts of engagement in warfare. This is exactly what we see David doing in chapter 2. When you hear and see evidence of God moving, that's when David rouses himself and he joins him in that. We get another example at the end of chapter 5, beginning at verse 22. Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Rephaim, and when David inquired of the Lord, he said, you shall not go up. Go around to their rear and come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself. For then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. The Lord gave him a specific military strategy. I mean, such that when you hear rustling in the trees, that's when you're supposed to go. And David does exactly that. It's totally different from the way David had attacked the Philistines at any other point. And so he's very sensitive and submissive to God's timing and ways. Submitting to God, dear ones, is not attempting to do great things for God and asking him to bless us, but rather it's finding out where God is working and then joining him in it. We join what God is doing. We don't try to carve out our own path and ask him to bless it. God is at work in and through the church, so we join the church and then anchor our lives in it. God is at work in and through prayer, so we call upon him individually as families and as a church. God is at work through his word, so we get rid of gimmicks and we trust in his power to save and sanctify through reading and obeying and preaching and teaching his word. It's these sorts of things that we do because those are the paths where God is working and where God is blessing. We don't try to invent our own stream and then say, hey, spirit, flow here. David is submissive. Secondly, David is compassionate. David's compassion. You say, well, that's, that's going to be a hard thing to see after we've seen this warrior king engaging the Philistines and mopping them up everywhere he goes. But after David hears of Saul and Jonathan's death back in chapter 1, he writes this incredible eulogy for them. It begins in verses... 117, and it goes to the, to the end of the chapter, and it's broken into three stanzas, each one beginning with this phrase, how the mighty have fallen, how the mighty have fallen, how the mighty have fallen. And it's interesting, in this eulogy to Saul, you will not read one negative word about Saul. Instead, we read things like this. Look back at chapter 1, 2 Samuel chapter 1, and look at verse 23. 
Notice what David says about Saul and Jonathan. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely. In life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. Let me be honest and be honest with yourself. After all that David had been through, is this really what you expect to read? Really? Would you write that about someone? Would you say that at their funeral? I think we wouldn't even go to the funeral. That person hurt me too much. They set their life to putting me to death. If you went through what David went through, is that what you would write? Where's the vengeance? Where's the anger? After all that Saul had done to him, David has nothing but praise. Talk about loving your enemies. David exemplified the biblical teaching of Romans 12, 19. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Just as David was wronged by Saul, we will be mistreated too by those who are close to us, even in our own family, in our own church. How good it is to trust God's justice so that we don't need to get even with those who hurt and harm us. If you pay careful attention to the next five chapters, you see that what dominates his rise to power is this heart of compassion. He mourns the death of his political rivals and he throws feasts for them when they want to reconcile. Would that that would be something of our political culture these days. Most of David's men want to execute vengeance on Saul's men who chase them through the wilderness. But David keeps saying, no, this is going to be a different kind of kingdom, guys. This is going to be one anchored in compassion. Having spent the last few weeks in D.C., I'm freshly awed by Abraham Lincoln. Not a perfect man by any means, but one whose legacy is marked by such things. After the horrific tragedy of slavery and the bloodiness of the Civil War, Lincoln, in his second inaugural address, famously said that, quote, we would achieve a just and lasting peace among ourselves only by dedicating ourselves to binding up the nation's wounded on both sides. Lincoln said, I've always found that mercy bears richer fruits than strict justice. It's true. You're a Christian because of that. Because mercy bears greater fruits than strict justice. 100 years later, Martin Luther King said, break the chain of hate and inject love into the, uh, the, uh, love into the universe. How do you break the chain of hate? Love. Another aspect of David's life that reflected that he was a true king was that he acted out of such compassion. Number three, David's devotion. We've seen David's submission, David's compassion, now David's devotion. Throughout the eulogy to Saul and Jonathan in chapter 1, what David grieves is that Saul's death is horrific in what it means for God's reputation to Israel and in the world. Saul's death was personally good for David. After all, it opened the path to the throne for him. But that's not what's on his mind. David doesn't mention a single word about his coming to the throne. All he laments is the reality of what this means for Israel. Look at verse 19 of chapter 1. 
Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. The, the glorious one of Israel, the king, is dead. That's how he begins. Paul Tripp says, You can know all you need to know about a person's heart by what they celebrate and by what they mourn. I'll read that again. You can know all you need to know about a person's heart by what they celebrate and by what they mourn. You see a lot about David's heart in this eulogy by how he mourns. You see that he's concerned about God's reputation in Israel and he's concerned about Israel's well-being. He's not concerned about his own access to the throne at the moment. David mourns what the death of Israel's king means for God's reputation in the world. He doesn't even mention that he'll be the new king. That's how low his own estimation of his own glory is on the list. And yet, despite these three great qualities of David's submission, David's compassion, and David's devotion to God, this is not the complete picture. Make no mistake, there is finally a man on Israel's throne who is both good and godly and gifted and who can rule God's people. Praise the Lord for that. And in these first 10 chapters of 2 Samuel in particular, we're going to see the highlights of David's life, of his leadership as we follow his ascent to the throne and the early years of his reign. And that's going to be a glorious sight in the weeks to come. But as we've seen, he acts with wisdom and honor. He tests his former en- enemies in Israel. With, he treats his former enemies in Israel with grace and conquers the nation's enemies. However, that's not all we're going to see. Because when David's at the height of his power, beginning at 2 Samuel chapter 11, he commits a great sin, and chapters 11 through 20 record the trouble which come as a consequence of his terrible moral and spiritual failure to the point where his kingdom is barely able to survive. And so it should come to us as no surprise in these opening four chapters that in addition to showing David's godly character, there's a little bit of a kink in the armor as well. Have a, they, that these chapters have, in the midst of all this celebration of David's ascent, there's also an on, ominous tone where we see some very disturbing things show up in David's life. And we begin to ask, is David really the king we're looking for and hoping for? While he is the true king, he's not the ultimate king. So we come to our second point, why is David not the ultimate king? Two two things I want to point out here related to David. First of all, David's instability. David's instability. What did God first say? When when God first mentions the idea of kingship in the Bible, at least Israel's monarchy as it would come to be, in Deuteronomy 17, what does he say? Let me remind us of those verses. I believe they'll be on the screen behind me. Deuteronomy 17, 14 to 17. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it, you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us, which is what they did. Be sure to appoint over you a king that the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your fellow Israelites, which is David. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who's not an Israelite. That would apply to both David and Saul. But it was, David was the one the Lord chose, not Saul. 
Verse 16, the king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them, for the Lord has told you you are not to go back that way again. Verse 17, he must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. Now I want to read three texts to you. First of all, 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 2. 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 2, and you can turn to these if you've got your Bible in front of you. So David went up there to Hebron after the Lord told him this, but who goes with him? And his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. Look at chapter 3, verses 2 through 5. And sons were born to David at Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon of Hinoam of Jezreel, and second, Chaliab of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. Third, Absalom, the son of Makkah, the daughter of Tamai, king of Geshur. The fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggath. The fifth, Sephathiah, the son of Abital. And the sixth, Ithream of Eglah, David's wife. These were born to David in Hebron. Six kids, six different women. Look at chapter 5, verse 13. David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to him. And these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. And I won't butcher those names. More concubines, more wives, more women, more kids. Are you seeing some problems that start to emerge here? 2 Samuel 11 doesn't come out of nowhere, friends. Multiplying wives is exactly what God commanded kings of Israel not to do. You say, well, that's just the political culture of the day. All the kings did that exactly, and Israel wasn't to be like the political culture of the day. David was being like the political culture of his day. He was taking more wives to himself. There are perhaps two reasons why David did this. First, it was common in those days for kings to take multiple wives because they could, as, tra- as tragically David went along with, more, so- more with society than with God's word. But second, the seeds of destruction are often sown during times of blessing. And David was experiencing times of blessing. God was blessing him, God was hearing him, God was leading him. Do you see that? I mean, the irony of 2 Samuel chapter 2. I mean, it should cause our hearts to to draw back. David is seeking the Lord's guidance in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And immediately we're told how many wives he has. God is guiding him even as he's disobeying the Lord. That's one of the points. And that's scary. It's scary to still hear God's voice in the midst of your sin. And God will allow it. And some of us will say, well, God must be approving of it. Things are going fine. I can continue in this lifestyle. God's listening. God answered my prayers. Oh, dear one, how fearful that is a position to be in. But how tempted we are to do that. To think that God hearing and answering our prayers means that he's okay with how we're living. 
you don't get to gauge how well you're living by whether or not God hears and answers your prayers or not. You gauge it according to what he says in his word. What he says is pleasing to him. Do not be fooled, dear ones. God is merciful and compassionate to us. He will listen to our prayers. He will answer our prayers because he is good. But that didn't mean we are. So don't make that mistake. David made that mistake. And he kept making that mistake. And God kept blessing him and kept giving him and kept providing for him and kept leading him and he kept going deeper and deeper in his sin. Remember back in 1 Samuel that David's first wife, Michal, was King Saul's daughter and David's first love. And all indications are that they had a good marriage and that she was a good wife. And at one point, she even risked her life to protect David. Remember that in 1 Samuel? But David wasn't satisfied. He became infatuated with Abigail. He wanted her too. And while he was married to Michal, he married Abigail as a second wife. And then after David got exiled, King Saul took Michal back and married her off to another man. And then toward the end of chapter 3, we find a really disturbing incident involving David's first wife, Michal. David has married five more wives since then. And now here in chapter 3, several years later, later, David decides he wants Michal back as a wife, not because necessarily he misses her, but because he needs her for strategic political reasons. Look at chapter 3, verses 14 to 16. Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife Michal, for whom I paid the bridal price of a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, Paltiel, the son of Laish. But her husband went with her, weeping after her all the way to Bahurim. Then Abner said to him, Go return, and he returned. This is a man who loved Michal, and David just takes her back thinking that he has the right to do such things. What stands out in these verses is how utterly callous David is toward Michal and her husband. He breaks up a happy home for his own convenience. In general, what you're going to see in David's life is women are largely pawns for him. This won't be the last time David takes another man's wife for his convenience, will it? Even one of his own soldiers. The Bathsheba incident is the fruition of a dark pattern in David's life. David, despite being a man after God's own heart, has a besetting sin that ultimately is going to bring him down. Now, dear ones, I have a question for you, and it's a serious one. What is your besetting sin? What is your inordinate desire? If you knew that this year Satan was going to take you down, how would he do it? Do you know it? I know it. I hope you know it. Being forewarned is forearmed. Sexual temptation? Temper problem? Abuse of power? Manipulation? Self-pity? Bitterness? Unforgiveness? Judgmentalism? Whatever it is, Beware. The seeds of compromise are present inside of us long before they harvest in our destruction. If you were to commit some heinous sin three to four years from now, what would you look back on today as the seeds of it? You see, sin is like cancer growing inside of us. 
It can start out small, but if it's left unchecked, it metastasizes until it takes over all the organs and brings the whole body down. So identify the seeds now until they grow. If not, a Bathsheba incident may be on your own horizon, and I don't want that for any of us. John Owen is right. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. But there's gospel hope here. Titus chapter 2, the grace of God has appeared, teaching us what? To say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-control, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who came to purify for himself a people who are zealous for good deeds. See, we don't have to fear what's inside of us if we have a Savior reigning over us. If we're submitting actively, wholly, completely, every area of our life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, we have no reason to fear. Because greater than he that is in us than he that is in the world. And I could say even greater than he that is in us than what is in us. (laughs) Because we are able, by his grace, to wage war. Not perfect warfare, but repentant warfare. That's what's absent in this hall, these chapters, is any repentance whatsoever on David's part. Any sense of, I'm sorry, Lord, for what I've done. Oh, he repents later, and rightfully so, and God glorifyingly so. But on the front end, he could have been repenting all along the way. In fact, the narrative gives us all these snapshots into David's immorality to show us he's not repenting. He's not repenting. He's not doing anything about it. The Samuel narrative narrator is telling us, don't be surprised when that happens because I've been dropping hints along the way like any good storyteller would do. Ooh, things aren't going to go well with that guy. So David's instability related to his own walk with God is one of the reasons he's not the ultimate king. Secondly and finally, David's inability. Not just David's instability, But his inability, what do I mean by inability? I mean his inability to deal with Israel's deepest problems. David's military prowess is well known. His courageous leadership on behalf of Israel is well known. It's spectacular, in fact. David is anointed king, and as soon as he's anointed king in these chapters, there becomes a rival king that comes up. It's Ishbosheth, our Saul's son. Saul's son, Ishbosheth, decides to anoint himself king. And so you got two rival kings, one in the north, one in the south. David's in the north, or David's in the south over Judah, Ishbosheth in the north over Israel. And Ishbosheth's main general is Abner, who had been the captain of Saul's army, and David's main general is Joab. And these two guys square up their armies to decide who's going to be the real king at the end of chapter 2. And Abner suggests that they decide it by representative warfare. Each one pre- Pick 12 guys, like the 12 tribes of Israel. Each of you pick 12, and then we'll have kind of representative combat. Whoever wins gets the kingdom. Well, what's the result? Look at chapter 2, verse 16. Chapter 2, verse 16. And the battle was fierce that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. Well, David's army wins showing that he is going to be the future king. So Abner and his men take off, fleeing for their lives. 
And then we meet a man named Ashahel, who's Joab's brother. Remember, Joab's the commander of David's army. And so Ashahel, Joab's brother, takes off in pursuit of Abner. And Abner tries not to fight him, but Ashahel won't give up. So Abner spins around, and he puts a spear through Ashahel, Joab's brother. And then Abner escapes and goes back to King Ishbosheth, where he starts to sleep with one of Saul's old concubines. But that makes Ishbosheth, who's the king now, the self-anointed one, suspicious of Abner because he feels like Abner might be making a play for the throne. So he and Abner get in a huge argument, and Abner decides that he's tired of being treated like a servant, and so he defects to Team David. So now you've got the main commander of the rival king going to David's side. Abner comes secretly to David to make a new alliance, and while they're in negotiations, Joab, the commander of David's army, says, Abner, there's a few private details I'd like to work out with you. Would you step back with me in this dark alley for a moment? You already know what happens, don't you? Remember, Abner was the one who killed Joab's brother. And so when Joab gets Abner back in the hallway, he whips out a small dagger and he stabs Abner in the gut, killing him. Meanwhile, back in the northern kingdom, two of Saul's old lieutenants murder Ishbosheth, who was king there in his sleep. And then they cut off Ishbosheth's head, they box it up, they bring it to David, thinking they're going to get rewarded for crushing David's rival king. You remember chapter 1? Well, David responds to them like he did to the Amalekite who came. How dare you lift up your hand and murder someone in the anointed king's family? And he has both of them executed. The kingdom that David inherited was deeply flawed. This is like a soap opera. And so we read in chapter 3, verse 1, there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. David reigns over a mess. This is a kingdom bathed in blood and revenge and chaos. And while David is able to bring a measure of peace, pretty soon the whole thing's going to unravel. Why is that? Because, dear ones, Israel's problems are too deep even for a righteous ruler like David to fix. Throughout history, endless political leaders have risen up to say that they will set the things right, won't they? They will bring an end to injustice. They will bring in a new reign of peace. Karl Marx said it when he promised that his politics would usher in a utopia. But after 150 years, we can safely say that all communism does is exacerbate suffering, create famine, and promote injustice. In the name of equality, all it does is create tyranny. In many ways, our country's own founding documents implied that our freedoms and prosperity would produce a race of good men. And our government is certainly a much better system than communism. But those freedoms have not cured greed or brought about justice. We're ramping up with an, for another election season, and I guarantee you at the end of all the rhetoric and rancor and all the pomp and circumstance, whoever's in the White House will be a broken leader leading broken people and will not bring us to the promised land. No matter how much nostalgia is in their campaign. Humanity needs a different savior, friends. One that can heal us in places government can't reach. And see, that leads us, the readers of this story, not to despair but to hope. Because you see, one day, 
from the tribe and lineage of David, another king will be born, a savior who is Christ the Lord. And unlike David, this king will have no compromises of character. He won't use his power to take wives. Instead, he will use his power to lay down his life for his disciples, even for his enemies. And through his death and resurrection, he will release into the world a power that can heal us in our most broken and sinful places, a place that David nor any king of Israel could ever reach. It's the king that we need. It's the king that Israel needs. It's the king that Jesus is. See, we can identify with all the other characters in this story, can't we? We can identify with Abner, the commander of Ishbosheth's army, Saul's son, who was a mix of self-sacrificial loyalty to Saul's house and at the same time some self-interested power. He makes Ishbosheth king rather than himself, and he does all that he can to avoid killing Ashael, but yet he knows God has appointed David as king, and he still sides with Ishbosheth in opposition to God. We read in chapter 3, verse 6 While there was a war between the house of David and the house of Saul, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. His arrogance, his manipulation. We can, we can recognize some of that in ourselves. We can also recognize the defiance and vengefulness in Joab, can't we, in ourselves? Joab, this soldier and military leader who was committed to David, but also committed to himself. His hostility towards Abner is political, but it's also personal. He blames Abner for the loss of his brother, and he knows that Abner's alliance with David will lead to his own position being compromised because he was a good commander too. And so he knows that he has to kill Abner. We also see Ishbosheth, the Saul's son, the rival king in the north who was cowardly and timid. He has to be made, that is taken, brought into kingship. Look at chapter 2 verses 8 and 9. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim, and he made him king over Gilead. Has to bring him and take him to be king. Ishbosheth even lacks the courage to follow through when Abner takes Saul's concubine in chapter 3. And then we see David. One who's courageous and devoted and submitted to God and nevertheless has unfaithfulness and compromise in his life. David works hard to heal the nation. He avenges Saul's death. He honors Saul in song. He commends the men of Jabesh Gilead for bearing Saul honestly. He distances himself from the murderers and laments the loss of Ishbosheth. He executes the men who murdered Ishbosheth. And nevertheless, David is also flawed. He fails to deal with Joab, disowning his actions but not removing him from his position. Joab should not have been set at liberty to kill Abner. He should have been punished for that. And David did not have the courage to deal with Joab. Part of it is Joab's his nephew. Family drama, you know, nepotism kind of gets in the way with stuff like that. The weakness of his dealing with Joab is contrasted with the punishment that he affords to those who killed Ishbosheth. He executes them immediately for killing an innocent man, but he won't do the same for his own commander. That's a problem, dear ones. 
It's not just. David is behaving unjustly. But the key player in all these chapters isn't us and our sin. It isn't Abner and his sin. It isn't Joab and his sin. It isn't Ishbosheth and his sin. It isn't David and his sin. It's God who's working out a story of redemption through the life of David. This isn't a morality tale. This isn't who's the good guys and who's the bad guys. Everybody's a bad guy in some way. But there's a good God who is working out a story of redemption here. And your life, my life sometimes, it may feel like a mess. But just as God was sovereign bringing David to the throne and Jesus to the throne, through chaos, by the way, he's bringing his kingdom out of our mess too. I'm not saying that mess isn't real and it isn't painful. It is. I'm saying that the mess that we sometimes find ourselves in is not the truest, not the deepest, not most eternal reality we are experiencing. And just as God was sovereign in the mess of these chapters, so he's sovereign in the mess of our lives as well. Trust him and join him in what he is doing. Be like David. Submit to him. Show compassion to others. Be devoted to Christ above all. And don't be like David. Deal with our sin. Repent where we're wrong. But most importantly, trust the Savior who's at work in all things. Just as David was gracious toward his enemies, so Jesus was most gracious to us when we were his enemies, reconciling us to God by his own death in our place. And if David could compose a song of praise for a man like Saul, how much more ought we to compose a song of praise to our perfect and glorious King Jesus, who has conquered sin, conquered death, conquered Satan on our behalf? So let's sing that song of praise in just a few moments as we close. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these opening chapters of Second Samuel, which are sobering and at the same time hope-giving. They sober us in the ways in which sin makes a mess of our lives, but they are a source of celebration because we do have a true king. We have a king who reigns over us in compassion and justice. We have a king who reigns over us in goodness and grace. We have a king who reigns over us in kindness, lavish, rich kindness and love. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being our king of glory. Thank you for being the king that we want to follow. We are sorry that, we are, we, that what remains in us is prone to wander. Lord, we feel it. But Lord, we pray that you would conquer all of our rebel desires and that you would establish your throne in every citadel of our hearts that remains in defiance to you. That by your spirit, you would help us put to death the deeds of the flesh and to live more and more by abiding in you in the life of the fruit of the spirit, the love and joy and the peace and so on that, that, that mirrors a life of our Savior. Thank you for the hope that you give. Thank you for the power that you give us by your Holy Spirit in our lives to live a life that is new and under your lordship, a power that David did not experience in the fullest measure that we experience, having the spirit of the risen Christ in our own lives. So Lord, we have a greater gift and we have a greater obligation. And we thank you for the light of redemption in which we live, the full noonday sun of Christ, 
where David was but a shadow and lived in the midst of shadows, we have the full noonday sun in our hearts, the sun of righteousness. And so, Lord, help us to live righteous lives in honor of our King. 